You're listening to a message from CT College, the college ministry of Cross Timbers Church located in Denton, Texas. If you would like to learn more about us, visit crosstimberschurch.org slash college or follow us on Instagram at CT underscore college. If you just, it's just in your own seat, would you just like think for a minute about the thing that you hate most about yourself? Really fun, I know. Uh, like the thing that you're most ashamed of, the thing you're most embarrassed about, the thing that you think that if, man, if they knew about this, man, I wouldn't be accepted. Man, I like wouldn't be cared for. And we can sing songs like that and be like, man, but if God saw this or knew this, man, I, I would be out. Like I would be out. I mean, well, like Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that being 99% known is to be unknown, but the God that knows all and knows the deepest, darkest, like still loves us. And so just so you know, like there is no one in the room tonight who's too far away. There's no one who uh, has gone, who's been gone for too far or gone for too long, but God is drawing you close tonight. And just know that he's, he's in pursuit of you and that he loves you. So I just need to, need to toss that out there. Um, before we get going any further, um, I want to introduce you guys, our guest speaker for this evening. Um, I've known him for the past three years up close and then probably for the past five or six years from a distance. Um, but Josiah Anthony, he's the Argyle campus pastor. Um, truthfully, we can't tell everyone this, probably my favorite communicator out of the teaching team that we have um, at Cross Timbers. And so I'm super pumped um, that, that Josiah is here tonight. Uh, has an awesome wife, two incredible outgoing kids. Um, and so y'all literally so pumped to introduce Josiah Anthony. So we give him a Cross Timbers College welcome to our Argyle campus pastor. Oh man, thank you, Cole. Man, yeah, as he said, I've got, uh, I've been married for five years, coming up on here in a couple months, and um, I got three, or two uh, kids, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so like 8 p.m. is really late for me. Like I had to ask three people what time the service started because I didn't believe that Ashley told me it started at 8. I was like, p.m., 8 p.m.? I haven't been out this late. I haven't worn pants past 7.30 in like five years, so (laughs) we're ahead of the game. So you guys know how like when you see somebody, you immediately have a first impression about them, right? Like what do they say? Within the first seven seconds of seeing somebody, you, you make up your mind about them, right? And we all do it, whether it's good, you don't like it or bad or whatever. Like all of you already have an impression about me. You've already filled in the gaps in your head a story. You're probably wrong, you know? I've done the same to you, and I'm probably wrong. But we do it, right? You can't avoid doing it. Like, we see people, and just our human nature is to fill in the gaps. Like, we just assume that we know something, or, or we just, that's what our mind does. My wife is, is do you, are you guys into Enneagram? Anybody knows what Enneagram is? All right, she's a six. Anybody a six? All right, so, yeah, if you're a six on Enneagram, that's my wife, Alex. So you're either a serial killer or her best friend. There's no in-between. It's not that she doesn't like you. She just thinks you want to harvest her organs until you don't. And then you guys are best friends, right? And so everybody she sees, she's like, eh, you better watch out for them until you're, you're <laughs> good. Yesterday, six, this is funny if you're six, you'll laugh at this. 
Sixes are worst case scenarios. Like all they do is think about the worst case scenario all the time. So yesterday we had a bad storm, right? Literally, I'm not kidding you, one o'clock in the morning, I'm out cold. She's pacing the house. She comes wake, she grabs my shirt and shakes me. Josiah, wake up. I'm like, what? I got a mouth guard because I snore like a freight train. I'm pulling it out. There's slobber all over the place. Josiah, the wind is blowing. I'm like, how long have you been up this whole night? The wind is blowing. I'm like, okay. I'm not making this up. She goes, put on your shoes. I'm like, why? Literally, she said, because if the walls blow down and we have to crawl out of the rubble, you need your shoes on. So that's a six. That's my wife in a nutshell, basically. The good thing is if the walls ever did blow down, you want to be around a six because they got their shoes on, right? So anyway, she's, I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. She's, we make assumptions about people, right? I know that, you know that. Did you know we do that about God, though? I was reading in Romans 1 this morning, and this isn't really what I'm talking about today. I just, I just want to set up kind of my heart, uh, especially if you're new here. Like, I don't, I don't want you to think I'm going to do anything weird or anything like that. I, have, I really don't have much of an agenda, but just this. I was reading in Romans 1, never seen this before. Romans 1, 21, Paul is talking. He says, yes, he's talking about Gentiles, Jews, people. He's saying that God is known. He's made himself known through his creation. That's what he's saying. And he says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. Listen to this. He says, and they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Can I tell you your greatest danger in life is not that you're going to fall off the deep end it's not that one day you're going to wake up and not believe in God, okay? Maybe some people, I don't believe that's, that's you in this room today. The greatest threat you face is not knowing God enough so you begin to make up foolish ideas about who you think God is. And then you get off track. And you start telling yourself stories about who you think this God is that we worship. He's judgmental. He's not loving. He doesn't receive me. He doesn't accept me. But the reality is, is that when we get to know him through his word, we begin to understand the true nature of God, which in turn makes us want to worship him. Okay. So my heart tonight, I say that to tell you this, I was praying about this morning, like God, what's the end goal for today? The end goal for me is to just help you understand God a little bit more tonight. That's it. I'm not trying to get you to do anything weird. I just want us collectively through his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand God just a little bit more. And the reason why is because no preacher talk. I just think life is better when we know who God is. So like my, all the stories and laughs we're going to have tonight, what I'm going to tell you, like I just want you to know if you don't go, go away with anything else, I don't even care if you're here and you don't even know if you believe in this whole Jesus stuff. I just want you to understand the God that we're talking about just a little bit more. That's all. That's it. Because I don't want your mind to make up foolish ideas that aren't true about him. Okay? All right. So um, I want to start off telling you a story. really begins with my wife's side of the family. Uh, she has 
a gr- she had a great aunt coot. I don't know. It's the least weird thing about her family. Trust me, okay? She had a great aunt coot. And gra- great aunt coot was extremely wealthy. Lots and lots of money, okay? Had a huge house. She never worked a day in her life. It was handed down to her. She was a fan of extravagant jewelry. That's what she liked. That's what she spent her money on. So she had all these amazing pieces. Her prized possession is, I'm sorry, I'm spitting on you guys right here. Splash them. Uh, he said, we love it. Her, her prized possession was this diamond set of a necklace and earrings, okay? It looked like something you'd see at the Met Gala. I don't even know what the Met Gala is, but I just, I've heard it one time. Something you see at the Met Gala, huge, okay? Not kidding, worth hundreds and thousands of dollars, probably about a half a million dollars of, of diamonds. Real big deal. So as she got older and she was about to die, all of these relatives begin to go see her, like they begin to manipulate their way into her life. And it was pretty comical to watch it. So people were like trying to weasel their way into her will because everybody was wondering who's going to get the diamonds. Nobody cared about anything else. They wanted the diamonds. It was like life-changing, okay? To this day, because of some of the just nasty things her family did to each other, uh, they, they have sisters that don't talk to other sisters, cousins that refuse to come to family reunions because there was such a family feud and uproar about these diamonds, right? Okay, so uh, fast forward, um, last year, Grant, great Aunt Coot uh, kicked the bucket. She died. She gonzo. And the diamonds were given to my wife's aunt, Cynthia, okay? So Cynthia gets the diamonds. Cynthia finds out last year she's got stage four cancer. So Cynthia's about to pass away. So Cynthia, this year, uh, spring break maybe, We were hanging out. She was in Texas, and she pulled my wife into a room. And she said, Alex, I'm going to die, and I want these diamonds to go to somebody special. And she gave the diamonds to my wife, okay? So my wife comes out of the room. She's got the diamonds on. She's in her pajama pants and the diamonds. (laughs) I mean, I can't even imagine, like, what what dinner we would ever go to that she would need to wear. I mean, I just, like, we would never be invited to anything that she would be appropriate to wear these diamonds, right? So she comes out with these diamonds on. Holy cow, man. You know, of course, I'm going, we're going to pawn those babies off. (laughs) Pay off the house, man. So she gets these diamonds. Next day, her and her mom uh, go to um, the jewelry store to get them Appraised. My wife is very excited. She just, she happens to be a connoisseur of things that we can't afford. She likes expensive things, right? And uh, so she's very excited. She gets to the jewelry store. This, she goes to this exotic jeweler uh, somewhere local that like specializes in this stuff, right? And uh, so she presents the diamonds to the jeweler and she goes like, how much are they really worth? You know, we found out that these diamonds that were supposedly her prized possessions uh, for her whole life, and she talked about them all the time, they were fake. They were fake. I don't know the backstory. I don't know how she got them. I don't know what led her to believe. I don't know if she was conning us the whole time, but they were fake. Uh, So they're sitting like on top of our closet or something now. Today I want to talk to you about how our value 
is not based off of our reputation. It's not based off of what people perceive us to be. It's not based off of our image or what we look, at, look like, but our value is based off what we are made of, period. It's not your reputation. It's not what you've done in the past. It's not what you're going to do in the future, but it's about what you are made of. We live in an uh, image-obsessed world, don't we? Right? Image-obsessed world. The reality is whether you like it or not, you are judged based off your appearance, based off your successes. If you're good at it, you're successful, you're beautiful, you're, you're uh, like to be around people, People like you, they're attracted to you, okay? People judge you based off of that. On the flip side, if you're a failure, if you're not good looking, if you haven't done anything noteworthy, you are rejected. And that's why some of you walk around with a banner of insecurity in your life because somewhere along the way, someone told you that you weren't good enough. And that planted a seed in your heart that you will always be rejected. I don't have to spend a lot of time talking about this. I could spend and kind of nerd out on all this stuff about our image-obsessed world. Like you guys know, right? Instagram, from the comparison games that we play to all of that, you know, and the, the Insta bloggers and social media. And I mean, just like I don't have to dig in deep to convince you guys that we live in an image-obsessed world, right? Like, everybody's obsessed with that. Let me find my notes here so I can keep going. So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But I do want to talk about a story in the Bible that we find. It's about a guy named King David. You've heard of him. But I want to give you a little bit of a backstory, okay? A little bit of a backstory. Israel becomes a nation. They get to the promised land. God tells Israel, you're my chosen people. I'm going to be your leader, okay? You don't need a king. You don't need a prophet. I'm going to be your leader, your president, your ambassador. I'm going to be your king. This works for a little while, but what happens is Israel gets established as a country. All of the other countries around them are going and blowing. They're growing up. Their economy's going, and they develop kings and leaders. And so Israel's sitting in the middle of all these nations with great kings, great militaries, and they're just like, God's our leader. The invisible God, you know, is our leader. We don't need a king. And they start playing the comparison game. Okay, And they start convincing themselves, I think we need a king. Like, God, we love you. You're great. We're going to worship you. But if we're going to hang with the big dogs, I think we're going to need like a real-life king, like someone who can, you know, like be here and has a face and everything, okay? So I think we need a king, which, by the way, I think there's a whole story in there about Israel and like the comparison games that they're playing, and how really what that story is about. The whole book of First and Second Kings, by the way, was written to basically talk about the failure of the Israeli monarchy and the Israeli nation because what they were doing was they were saying all of their problems were because they didn't have a king. This is what they had convinced themselves. So they said, we need a king. God, you're not good enough. We need an earthly king. So I think the lesson in that out of two Old Testament books 
for us is that oftentimes we look for earthly solutions to solve our problems when it's not the thing that's going to solve our problems. The only thing that's going to solve our problems is finding life in Jesus Christ. But we look for earthly things. We look for things to say, this is going to fix our problem. An earthly king is going to fix our problem. An earthly king is going to put us above everybody else is exactly what Israel was doing. God was kind of fed up with them. He said, really, I'm the answer to your problems, but that's fine. Can I tell you something? There is nothing in this world that's going to solve your problems but Jesus Christ. Nothing. No relationship, no job, nothing. No new apartment, no new car, no salary. There is nothing on this earth that's going to give you peace and solve your problems than Jesus Christ. My wife, I do this all the time. I try to find my answers in my wife, right? Like she's my source of happiness or something. And she fails me all the time and I fail her. Because I will never be her source of happiness. She will never be my source of happiness. It's only found in Christ. So the greatest relationship I've ever been in, the love of my life, the hottest woman, she is hot. And I know every pastor says that, but like she's actually hot. She's, and she's like Texas hot, not like Idaho hot, you know. She's hot and she's not the source of my happiness, and she cannot solve. Is anybody from Idaho? Okay. Whew. She's not the source, right? And so that's the lesson we find in the first and second king. So Israel says, we need a king. We need a king. So God says, all right, you want a king, get a king. So what do they do? They choose the biggest, baddest dude they can find. His name's Saul. Apparently, he's really good looking. He's a huge guy. He's got it all together. They said, we want you to be our king. Well, what happens is he fails them. A couple years down the road, he starts turning away from God's law, takes them down a bad road. Israel's failing. Israel's losing wars. They're getting dominated. This guy's making bad decisions. Whole story about him living in fear and insecurity and hiding. Every time God calls him to something, it's kind of crazy. So God says, look, I will, I will get you a king if you want a king, but Saul's not the guy. My anointing is off of him. He is not the guy who's going to lead the people of Israel, okay? Saul's not the guy who's going to lead the chosen nation of Israel. So God says, I'll get you a king, but this time I'm choosing. So God calls Saul to go to the house of Jesse. Jesse's sitting there with like, I don't know, like 12 boys. I don't know how many. He has a lot of boys. He has a lot of boys. And he gets there. And God says, one of the kings of, uh, the next king of Israel is in Jesse's house. You guys hanging with me right now? Okay, I'm almost there, I promise. So he gets to Jesse's house, and Jesse lines up all of his boys, all of his oldest to youngest, and he says, which one do you want? And Saul's looking at him, he says, I don't think, no, I'm sorry, Solomon, Solomon, isn't it, Cole? Saul or Solomon? Who went to go pick David? Samuel, Samuel, I'm sorry, Samuel. Samuel goes, doesn't matter. Samuel, details. Samuel goes, Samuel, so Samuel goes to pick the boy, and, and Jesse says, which one do you want? And uh, Samuel goes, he's not here. Do you have another boy? And Jesse says, well, yeah, but you don't want him. And Samuel says, well, why? He says, well... He's the youngest. His, his name's David. He's kind of a squirmy little guy. He's, uh, he's out in the field. You don't want David. Samuel says, bring me David. Goes, no, 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 no. 
Like David, David's kind of a hipster. Like he slack lines on his days off, paints with barefoot in the fields, plays the harp for God's sakes. Like you really want a king that plays the harp. And he said, no, bring me David. And so he calls for David. David comes riding up in his skinny jeans and vintage bike. <laughs> and he gets there. And Samuel looks at David. Samuel. And goes, really, God? This guy? This guy is the next king of Israel. And this is what I want you to catch, okay? This is what God says to him right here. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So it says that God found favor with David, not because of how he looked, but because of what he was made of. This is what he saw in David. You know, when I first read this verse, it makes me a little bit nervous. Because there are days where I wish that God only saw my outward appearance. My beard is on point tonight, y'all. And sometimes I wish that God just saw that. Saw my family, our Instagram family, right? I wish he saw how hard I worked, how successful I think I might be. I don't know. But he doesn't. He doesn't see that. He doesn't see the good or the bad. What he sees is he sees my heart. That scares me. Because I know my heart too. And I know the temptations that I face. I know the thoughts that I have. I know the words that I want to say. I know what keeps me up at night. I know my weaknesses. I know what I am ashamed of. When Cole said that earlier, it took me about .01 milliseconds to think about the one thing that I'm ashamed of. I look at my heart and nobody else knows that I pop antidepressants like Pez. Nobody knows how often I've dreamed about picking up and starting fresh. And so when I read this verse that God sees my heart, that scares me. And it makes me wonder if he's still on my side. And as I'm reading this story, I begin to think about David. And I thought, wait a second. David was like 12 when this happened. All he's been his whole life is a shepherd in a field. Like his human interaction has been next to nothing outside of his family and some dumb sheep. He hasn't accomplished anything. He hasn't been successful at anything. He hasn't proven anything. Why is God choosing David? He doesn't have a reputation, good or bad. There's nothing on his resume. He hasn't done anything to be 
the king of Israel. Okay, let's pull like the omnipresence out on God and say if God knows time is man-made and God knows the future of David, look at the future of David. The guy's a whack job. Me and him would be besties. He's got a mental illness. He's suicidal. He has a bunch of affairs. He's like murdering people to sleep with their wives. He still plays the harp like 20 years later. <laughs> Come on, man. You know. like, he, 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 like he's had a lot of failures. And so if you look at the future of David, you're going, like, God, do you know what he's going to do? Why are you choosing David? Have you ever wondered that? God looks at David and said, this man, this young boy, is going to be one of the greatest kings to lead my chosen holy people. So I have to stop. Like, I'm way too logical to read that and go, yay, praise God. You know, it's like, what in the world is going on here? And so I'm reading through that. And I felt like the Lord just said this to me when I was reading it. What I saw in David is the same thing I see in you, and it's the same thing he sees in you, and in you, and in you, and in you. It's not your past, but it's your purpose. It's not your corks, but it's your calling. It is the potential that God has placed inside of you to be like Jesus. That's what God saw when he looked at David. It had nothing to do with his accomplishments or his failures. When God looked at David, what he saw that made him say he's going to be a great king of my nation of Israel is the calling that he's placed in his life from day one to walk out his life and be like Jesus. And it's the same thing he sees in you. It's what he saw in Moses. All these guys are screw-ups, man. It's what he saw in Moses. It's what he saw in Abraham. It's what he saw in Joshua. what he saw in Peter. It's what he saw in John. It's what he saw in Paul. It's what he saw in Ezra. It's what he saw in Jonah. You look at all of the greats in the Bible. This is what God sees in them. is nothing about their accomplishments, nothing about their failures. He sees their calling that he has placed in their life. And it's the same thing he sees about you. You have heard it said before. He does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called, and he has called you. Okay? So... I just keep going, right? Because I'm not sure I still believe this. So I go, well, what is our calling then, right? I get that we all have calling. I mean, some of you are going to be teachers. Some of you are going to be mechanics. Some of you are going to be pastors. Some of you, you guys are going to go and do great things in this world and be difference makers like nobody's business. I get that all of you have a specific calling, but what is our collective calling as followers of Jesus? What is God calling us? When I sit here and I say that when God looks at you, he sees the calling and potential and the purpose that he's placed in your life, what is that? What am I talking about? And so I have to go back to the origin story. I have to go back to Genesis 1 because if I want to see what I'm made of, then I need to go see how I'm made. And in Genesis 1, God, he's creating the earth, and he's getting in this poetic rhythm, right? It's like, man, God created the sky, and it was good. God created the water, and it was good. God created the land, and it was good. God created the birds, and it was good. 
God created the animals and it was good. God created the trees and it was good. The sun and the moon and the stars and it was good. And then he stops and he breaks rhythm. He breaks his poetic rhythm all throughout Genesis 1 and he gets to you and me. And he says he created you and me in his image. Everybody say image. When we look at the story of Genesis, we see that he has set us apart from all other creations. He has set us apart from everything else he has made. And he says, I created man and woman in my image. You know what the job of an image is? This is so deep, it's going to blow your mind. It's to image. The job of an image is to image. It's to reflect. It's to mirror who God is in nature. God created you with a calling. When he looks at you, he sees the calling in your life. And the calling he sees in your life is the potential to be like him. That's what he sees. He sees that he created you in his image. And so you, my friend... You have the calling, the purpose, and the potential to be like him. Now, whether you step into that potential or not, guess whose decision that is? Yours. You get to make that decision. God gives you potential. You know what potential means? Potential means you have the ability to do something. Now, whether you do it or not, that's completely up to you. But God has placed the potential in you to be like him. It says in Romans 1 that you have been assigned. If you're a teacher, anybody getting uh, 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 schooling and being a teacher? What do they call it? A schooling degree. Schooling? Anybody getting schooling? Degree. You're getting a degree in teaching? Who's getting a degree in teaching? You are? Yeah. When, you, when you're a teacher and you assign your students something, you're not going to teach them. What are, you getting your, what are you getting your degree in? Art? What is it? Elementary education? Elementary education. What do you want to teach? You know, just all of it? Is that what they do? They just teach all of it? Okay, kindergarten. Let's say you're teaching art, all right? You're teaching art in high school. <laughs> just go with it, guys. Golly, I told you it's late for me. I got like six minutes. All right, I'm sorry. I've had like three Red Bulls because <laughs> I'll fall asleep. Uh you're teaching art, man. You're gonna, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna equip, you're gonna equip your students to accomplish the assignment that you give them. You're teaching high school art over here. You're not gonna give them a biology test when they show up and have no, they have no idea even how to do it. The assignments you've given, you have whether they know it or not. A bunch of boneheads. You're gonna, you're, you're, they are gonna have everything they need to complete that assignment. And God has equipped you with everything you need to complete his assignment to be like him. Everything. Now, whether you do it or not, that's up to you. I don't know how good of a student you are. So God has called you to be like him. He has placed the potential in you to be like him. And in Colossians 1, it says that Jesus, he was the perfect image the perfect image. And so he came, 
not only to die on the cross for our sins and raise from the grave three days later so that we may have a relationship with him so that any of this is possible, but he also came to exemplify for us what an image is supposed to look like. So we look at his life and say, I'm trying to be like Jesus because that is the calling in my life. So when we read the Bible, it's like, we're just trying to be like him, man. We're trying to be how Jesus was, and we watched how he loved and how he forgave and how he served and how he accepted and how he sacrificed his own will for ours. So we are created in him, and that is what God sees in you when he looks at you, not your failures, not your success. So why does this matter? It's a good question. I should be able to answer that. Uh, I just think it's important that whenever, like, God gives you something, it's like, why does this matter? Like, I feel like I should, like, part of my job is, is when I tell you something, I need to be able to tell you why this matters. I can't stand listening to preaching that doesn't matter, honestly. And there's a lot out there. It's like, that's great. Thank you. What am I supposed to do with this on Monday? A couple reasons why this matters. Three reasons, actually. First reason is this. Every single day, I blow it. Like, royally, I blow it. Within, like, first five minutes of being awake, I'm, I've sinned, okay? And I need to remember this because if I don't remember that God doesn't see my failures, but he sees my purpose and my calling in my life, then I will constantly be thinking about how I've screwed up, Right? And I'll become obsessed with it, obsessed with the insecurity. I will become obsessed with how bad I suck. I'll become a narcissist. I'll think about it. And then I'll begin this crazy cycle of trying to make up for my losses, trying to do good throughout my day. And then I just get tired and worn out. And then I'm like, well, forget this religion thing. Forget God, which goes back to this idea that when we don't know God, we begin to make up stories of who he is, that he's a judgmental God that bases us off our good and our bad. And then we're trying to keep score in our relationship with him. And I just go nuts, man. It's like, like my life is just spinning out of control. But when I look and I remember that God is not looking at me and he's not looking at what I've done on the outside, but he's looking at my heart, specifically at my calling, then I can be reminded that I'm never too far away from his grace. And I believe there are people in this room today who you believe you will never be able to make up or get over that binge, that drink, that act, that word, that relationship, whatever you've done in the past. And God wants to tell you today that the potential and the calling to be like him is just as strong in you in this moment as it was from the day that you were born. And there is nothing you can do about it. Sorry. You cannot get away from it. He created you with a purpose. You cannot take away the original purpose for the original creation, no matter how hard you try. No matter how hard I try to make this table do something different, it will always be a table. And it has always been created to be a table. Second reason why this matters is because it's important to understand that God has already given you an image so that you don't have to go out trying to create your own. 
Dude, aren't you tired of that? Like, aren't you weary of trying to keep up your image that you've created? Wouldn't it be nice to just let that go and just step into the image that God has created for you? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Yes. Come with me, get away with me, you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Drop it at the feet of Jesus, man. I'm just telling you right now, you're burning the candle off both ends trying to keep up with your image. And that image is going to get you nowhere. It's just going to put you in the grave faster. You're going to have a heart attack and die because you're so tired of trying to keep up with your image. God's already given you an image, man. And I'm telling you, it's way better than any image you can come up with for me too. And then lastly, last thing, most, most important thing. When you're willing to step into that image that God has created for you, and you become the authentic version of yourself and walk in the original purpose and destiny that he has planned for you to walk in since the beginning of time, you become a more genuine person. You know what that means? It means that more people are drawn to you so that you can point them to the love of Jesus. You want to repel people? Then, then like, keep being fake. Don't be yourself. Don't be who God created you to be. Don't walk out in your calling. Just try to keep on running on that hamster wheel of keeping up your image and just doing everything you can to be defensive and keep the guards up and keep people at an arm's length and nobody will want to come towards you. Trust me, I have lived that life. I've lived it. For years, I lived that life. And it's isolating, and it's depressing, and it's terrible, and nobody will get to know Jesus through you when you live that life. But when you're willing to drop the guard down and go, God, I'm stepping into my calling, I'm stepping into my destiny, I'm willing to be the authentic version of myself because you've given me an image that's better than any image that I can come up with. People are drawn to that. You ever been around those people that you just can't get enough of? Those are the people that are going, Lord, I'm just gonna be who you created me to be because I believe that is good enough. And it's better than good enough. And so listen, hear me, man, all I'm saying to you tonight, like the only thing I wanna get across to you is that when God looks at you, like he just sees the calling in you and the potential to be like Jesus and he just so badly wants you to step into that because it's a better life. It's just better better okay let me pray for us and then we're gonna sing God we are just eternally grateful for the calling that you have on our lives God I'm just I'm just personally grateful for the fact that you you don't see what man sees but you see how you created me to be Lord, I just pray that I would have the courage to step into that day after day after day through the power of the Holy Spirit.
so tempting, so tempting just to sink back into my secure, isolated life. So Lord, I just pray that you just give me the, the, the willingness and the desire. First Peter 2.13 says that when we don't feel like it, God gives us the power and the desire to do what's pleasing to him. And that's important because there are days I wake up where I don't have the power, but I have the desire. And I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you there's days I wake up where I have the power, but I don't have the desire. Peter says God works in you to give you the power and the desire to do what's pleasing to him. So God, I just pray that you give me that today in Jesus' name. Amen.